Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. Hey guys, it's Helen Molesworth here. I'm excited to let you know that I'm going to be your host for the next season of Dialogues. But before we drop those episodes in the winter, we've got a little something else on tap. I'm going to be calling dear friends and seeing what is top of mind in their studios or their work, in the art world, in art history, and in the culture at large. We'll be dropping these hot takes on what's going on every other week or so, and I really hope you enjoy them. Uh, my name is Alexis Rockman, and I'm an artist um, that's focused primarily on the history of natural history, climate change, and the genetic revolution, stuff like that. And that is exactly why I wanted to talk to you, because Alexis, I think... I think you and I met like in 1988 or 1989, and you were one of a small group of people, including um, Mark Dion and William Schifrin, and now the late, wonderful Ashley Bickerton, who were thinking about nature, the earth, ecosystems, Gaia. You, you were my absolute canary in the coal mine. You saw what was coming down the pike at us really a long time ago. And so when these Just Stop Oil protests started happening in museums, you were someone I really wanted to talk to about all of this stuff. Well, I really appreciate that. And that's something that I, as soon as I saw Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil, I started to think about the generation that's much younger than us that's going to have to deal with these issues and the aftermath of the Industrial Revolution from the get-go. And I have so much sympathy for the young, the youth. Um, Dorothy, my wife, has two sons. We've talked about this since they were very little. I came into their lives 22 years ago and very tough. It's a you know, existential to say the least. So it's a fascinating Indeed. moment. So let me just, um, let me do, let me set the stage a little bit in case there are people listening who don't know what we're talking about, or for all the people who are listening and who do know what we're talking about, just to get us all on the same page. So Just Stop Oil is a British-based activist group. Their demands are incredibly straightforward. It's that the British government not engage in any policies that are uh, regarding new oil so that all of the movement forward would be for sustainable energy sources. So no new oil drilling anywhere related to the UK. They have engaged in a variety of protests ranging from civil disobedience, stopping traffic in the streets of London, and most recently, they started taking their protests into museums where they would do a variety of things. They would glue their hands to the walls 
frames of paintings or the pedestals of sculptures. They upped the ante when they started throwing food at glazed paintings. And glazed paintings is the fancy museum word we use for paintings that have a sheet, a plane of, ga- of glass in front of the painting. And perhaps most famously, they threw tomato soup on Van Gogh's sunflowers in the National Gallery in London. One of the most famous paintings, you know, ever made. I want to just preface all of this by saying, you know, no harm has been done to any painting that has been so far attacked. They're funded by a group called the Climate Emergency Fund, whose mission is, in fact, to fund the activists who are working on the ground level. Um, And the Climate Emergency Fund is largely sponsored by the filmmaker Adam McKay and the philanthropist Eileen Getty. In response to these protests, the American Museum Directors Association put forward the following statement. The AMD has always been clear that attacks attacks on works of art cannot be justified whether the motivations are political, religious, or cultural. Art crosses boundaries of time and place to underscore the creativity that people everywhere have expressed, and they represent our shared humanity. Attacking art for any purpose undermines those common bonds. Such protests are misdirected, and the ends do not justify the means. I confess when I read that statement, I was really deflated, that uh, the statement could not even address climate, cri- the climate crisis that we are facing, uh, that it was such an anodyne statement around protest as such. Jerry Saltz, who many of us, you know, um, look to as his own kind of canary in the coal mine, right? Like he's always sort of out there chirping something and tweeting. Like, something like that. Something like that. Jerry, in his much-followed Twitter account, wrote, I find this nightmarish iconoclasm Taliban-like in its sick certitude and imperious self-righteousness and implied hatred of any idea of beauty. The art world needs to stand up to this. I love beauty and hate the destruction of the earth. Paradox. I don't know, Alexis. I feel really on the outside of my own quote-unquote community here. And I wondered if you just wanted to talk a little bit about, one, how do you, how do you read those responses of um, people in the art world to, this, to these protests? I mean, I think like every umbrella group, there's a lot of complexity and different demographics within it. And, you know, someone like Jerry, who I have a tremendous fondness for, he is very much of a volume shooter, to use a basketball metaphor. And um, he, I think he missed the mark on this particular point. And the, um, the issues that I see here is there's a sense of insularity in the art world that we're all aware of. Some of the, um, the comments on Jerry's um, Instagram feed, which is the only thing I saw, I don't, I don't do Twitter, luckily now, especially with Elon Musk at the helm, that there was a tremendous amount of hostility um, towards these activists. And I mean, to be perfectly frank, I couldn't be more supportive of what they're doing. And it's the least that we could be doing. And I find my attempts to do stuff in terms of being an artist a a bit of a failure, uh, to say the least. Um, I obviously cared about these issues since I was a kid and was 
um, told about uh, global warming, climate change in 1995 when a paleontologist explained that what we were doing to the atmosphere was a lot like what caused the Permian extinction, which destroyed 92% of life on Earth, including ocean life, using the precise chemistry that we're in the middle of right now. And that came from volcanic activity. So I think it's great. It's too little too late where these people are coming from with their hostility. Um, I I think they should be more hostile to the um, fossil fuel industry um, and whoever else are the, um, the perpetrators of this horrible quagmire of misinformation that we're in. I don't know how effective it's going to be. And we can talk about the, the, the issues and the history of activism, which I think is fascinating. But um, I know that every, um, every, every moment we can think of that has to do with um, nonviolent resistance or civil disobedience, there are plenty of people in the audience or the rest of the planet that thought it was too much, it was misdirected. And every time that it's been effective, there's been, you know, a level of resistance. And that's obviously baked into the DNA of this situation. I wonder if we could, let's, I do want to have a moment where we talk about the, the activists who are trying to basically either stop big oil from expanding its footprint or just get a conversation started, which is, I think, one of the tactics of just stop oil in museums, right? They're trying to get people like us to have conversations like this. They're trying to expand the public reach of their conversation. And one of the things I'm really aware of when it comes to this group of people is that we tend to see climate resistors or climate activists as particularly crazy. There's Julia Butterfly, who lived in a redwood tree, I think, for over 700 days. Um, there's Greenpeace and their, you know, also extreme activism. There's a wonderful short film called The Reluctant Radical about the climate activist Ken Ward, in which he describes going to a psychiatrist and describing his bereft feelings about the, the destruction of the earth. And this, the psychiatrist basically says, you're depressed and should take lithium. Like, so what is it, do you think, that makes us paint these people as such extreme characters? Well, I mean, I, I have to say I'm on the other side of the coin, being one of those characters, um, even though I've yet to you know, sacrifice, and that's partia partially my moral failure is not doing more um, from my perspective. But um, how can, first of all, business as usual is what everyone wants because let's face it, being alive on this planet, even if you're, we're incre incredibly privileged like we are in the art world and we can make a living thinking about these issues um, is a tremendous struggle. And 99.9% .9 of the planet is worried about where their next meal is coming from. And they really honestly don't have the time the economics or the inclination to think about the big picture. And that's also baked into our DNA as primates. We can think a couple of seasons out. So it's this idea that we're dealing with this future um, that uh, is, seems inconceivable. And the fact that people are willing to sacrifice their daily comfort to do something about it might seem crazy from a certain perspective, especially if you don't care about these issues. Right. You know, it's interesting. Um... One of the things, of course, that happens is when you talk about a mass extinction event or 
when we talk about that in our lifetime, and you and I are pretty much the same age, we're 60s yep. babies, you know, we're going to, you know, in the next 30 years of our life, that there'll be massive migrations of people in sub-Saharan Africa in search of water, right? Yep. Like we know this will happen in our lifetime. And yet the futurity of this is something we cannot hold on to. And I think about something Toni Morrison said. She said once that, I'm paraphrasing, of course, here, that a lot of the um, enslaved people who wrote narratives about their enslavement often stopped short of describing the full reality of their enslavement because they knew that their white readership would not be able to sort of take it in and process it, that, that even their sympathetic readers would find these truths too graphic to bear. Yes. And do you think that's part of it? I mean, can we just not face up to um, the, the trauma that is coming? Well, I think, yeah, I think absolutely. It's inconceivable. And the stakes are so, have been so high that, um, you know, if you're theological, it's God's realm. It's so big that it's beyond human, human purview. Um, but I think the thing to also remember is that we have been brainwashed by, you know, whataboutism, the oil industry, taking a playbook out of the, um, the tobacco industry, stall and deflect and put it off and add doubt so that if you feel like you have to do something about it, which you know the science is there, if you're, you know, in any way paying attention to the news, no matter how much misdirection there is from social media and some other stuff, there is a sense of futility and insanity to feeling helpless at the face of this enormous issue. And the people that we've elected and the people that we hold up as basically the custodians of you know, the planet have been completely corrupt, mostly, or ineffectual. And how can you not feel insane and despairing in the face of that every morning? When you wake up and think about it, things have just gotten worse and worse. Things have gone in the wrong direction. You use the word futility, and I do think a lot of us feel this futility on a daily level. I get in my car in L.A. I fly around a lot. I'm very privileged. You know, yeah. I, f I, take, I take planes to go to work, um, and I see the San Gabriels don't have as much snow on them already this fall. I can see now that the air has cleared in Los Angeles. So there's an incredible sense of futility, and I wonder if this futility has gotten us to this moment of iconoclasm. I mean, we, are, we do live in an iconoclastic era in which monuments are pulled down and paintings are attacked. And I wonder if, if given how long you've been working on this, these issues and how many paintings you've made about these issues, if there's a way you could think about futility and iconoclasm and you know, one, do you think that's a, a kind of a spectrum that, that makes sense? And two, what's your way out of it? Like, how do you do it every day, Alexis? Oh, that's a really interesting question. And I hadn't thought about this until you just, I mean, the iconoclasm is really a fascinating historical moment. And, you know, those are often antecedents to revolution, right? Yep. For positive, for better or worse. Um, I made a body of work after I finished Manifest Destiny, which was for those of the listeners that don't know that project I did. I started in 1999 after 
I've been thinking about climate change and what little was going to happen um, in the face of these, this enormous issue. I decided to make an enormous painting, eight by 24 feet, that's now in the Smithsonian, imagining what climate change was going to do to parts of Brooklyn looking from the East River um, East. And I consulted with James Hansen and Cynthia Rosenzweig, the foremost climate um, scientists of the era. Um, James Hansen eventually uh, resigned in protest under Bush. Uh, he was the director of the Goddard Center or whatever his official title was. Um, and I made the painting and it went on the road. And then, well, first of all, it opened at the Brooklyn Museum. And two weeks later, the day after tomorrow came out, which is a terrible Roland Emmerich disaster vehicle that has climate change as one of the issues. And it made it kind of a joke out of climate change. And it was really very dispiriting. I mean, I always felt like a movie, um, not unlike China Syndrome, if it dealt with these issues 20 or 30 years ago, I think we'd have much better understanding of what's at stake. But the storytelling in um, The Day After Tomorrow was ter terrible. Anyway, after I finished um, Manifest Destiny, I spent a couple of years making paintings, getting back, don't worry, I'm getting back to the iconoclasm called American Icons, where I took images of American tourism, Mount Rushmore, the St. Louis Arch, the Capitol building, and so on, and turned them into ruins, um, which is not reinventing the wheel, obviously. I mean, we've all seen Planet of the Apes and Logan Geron and stuff from pop culture that have done very good jobs with that, but really tried to take it a little more seriously and have introduced species and um, kudzu and other things implicated into this landscape um, as a type of iconoclasm because they're icons and they're being, you know, damaged. So I've, I've tried to do that here and there. And, you know, how do I feel about my career? I mean, there, I was watching this documentary last night about Sidney Lamette, and he said something really interesting about his moral compass. Now it's so much in my brain that I can't make anything that doesn't deal with these issues. And I've kind of had to let go of it in order to keep going because mm -hmm. I really feel a sense of um, ineffectualness in terms of making positive change. Right. I wonder, you know, you talked about um, the, that movie, which I hadn't seen, but I'm curious, you know, disaster movies in this in Hollywood are obviously a you know a major moneymaker, and what they do over and over again is it seems like habituate us to an apocalypse. <laughs> you know, yeah. like the basic premise of every disaster movie is the apocalypse is coming, and most of us are not prepared. And I wonder if there's part of like how do you or do you see the darkness of this Hollywood imagination, this kind of death, this this death cinema that we that we grew up with and that pervades um, as being maybe part and parcel of like our inability to face the coming apocalypse head on, you know, because we're so habituated to it in a in the spirit of disaster movies. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I noticed myself, you know, my my studio and where I used to live during 9-11, I was right there and I was actually walking to the studio when the second tower collapsed, thinking it would be just another normal day, not understanding. I noticed that the iconography of that looked very familiar and I made a note to myself saying, oh, there's a lot more dust than I've ever considered um, in terms of, wow. you know, right. how you know big structures collapse. Yeah, I think there's a lot of mimicry. Um, you know, this is also, you know, we have a culture that has examined the end of the world um, in uh, 
know, literature, theological ideas. So it seems familiar to a certain extent. And humans have always triumphed in these narratives because that's the trope that everyone's playing with um, if you're dealing with um, storytelling. So there's an unfortunate resemblance to familiar narratives that uh, I, I don't think we quite comprehend what's at stake. Yeah. You and I are both New York City kids. We grew up in those New York City museums. We grew up in the wheelhouse of, you know, Ars Longa Vita Brevis, you know, like to that that was our kind of cultural birthright to see T-Rex at the Natural History Museum or, you know, the, the Courvoisier painting at the Met, right? Like we ha yeah. we believe in art's timelessness, no matter how sarcastic or cynical we might be about it. I think we both, at the end of the day, have a lot of skin in that game. A lot of love. A lot of love in that game. And so I'm curious for you as an artist, particularly an oil painter, I mean, you operate in this very long, multi-century tradition. It seemed what radical has, for a minute. Yeah, I mean, it did seem radical for a minute. Around, around 1450, I think. Oh, and then like, 1984, too. <laughs> Anyway, um, what does a newly truncated or limited version of human life, I mean, how does that inflect your project now? I mean, if you believe, as hard as it is to believe, that one of the things on the table is the extinction of the human species. I, I have to take an exception to that. I don't think humans are humans have a very bright future. It's the quality of life and the biodiversity of everything else that will suffer immeasurably. Humans, especially wealthy humans, will they'll have options, but everything else is really going to suffer. Um, so you think, so you're of the mind that like, we're going to adapt into whatever adapt. A very small percentage of us will. A very small percentage of us will yeah. adapt. and Survive, does, survive. And does that inflect your sense of your project and this art project in general, capital A art? I can't, I don't, where is, you know, I mean, am I going to be making um, a, a structure to live in out of my paintings? I don't know. As a shantytown, I mean, you know, you just don't know where there's a lot of things that are sort of, um, uh, um, let's just say on stay tuned to really know what's going to happen with that. But I just have to try to get up every morning and try to, I mean, a lot of what I do is trying to cope with what I know is coming and what I know is happening and try to internalize it. And I've been lucky enough to make a living making paintings and works on paper about this stuff. And it's been pretty much of a miracle as far as I'm concerned, but um, I don't, uh, I, I don't know that an the answer to that, Helen. I think it's a really interesting question. But one of the things I hear in what you're saying is that even you, someone who I think, you know, really grapples with these issues more daily and more head on than most people I know. One of the things I hear is that even you put some parentheses around it when you go into the studio to do your work. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's such a privilege to be able to do this stuff. And, you know, that's an interesting segue into um, something I wanted to talk about is what the ultimate sacrifice for these issues. Like, what am I doing to, you know, I, I've, 
with the knowledge that now China is out of the game of recycling plastic, what is the point of recycling plastic when you know it goes in a landfill? Right. Um, I think there's a really interesting question of what is enough in terms of self self sacrifice. And I think one of the interesting things that you brought up is you know the supporters of Just Stop Oil have been accused of being elite hypocrites. Um, you know, Eileen Getty, well, her money comes from the fossil fuel industry and Adam McKay is in Hollywood, whatever that means. I say to critics of, of these two individuals, um, good for them. They have the resources to do it. What the hell are you doing about it? And right. it's like, what do you want from people? Like literally to self-immolate like those monks in the 60s when they felt that that was the last gesture that they could do in order to be taken seriously or get some attention for their issues, um, you know, and to, to be a little descriptive, there were two, um, two versions of this. One is, was in South Vietnam. A Buddhist monk in 1963 was um, obviously very upset the way that the, um, the, uh, um, the, the Christian uh, government was treating Buddhists, that he lit himself on fire after dousing himself with gasoline or kerosene. And then there was someone named Norman Morrison in 1965 that protested the U.S.'s involvement in Vietnam and did the same exact thing um, in D.C. on right. the street after handing off his daughter to a stranger. Mm. Mm. So I, that is, is that the ultimate sacrifice? Is that what it takes to be taken seriously in this context? Maybe. You know, it's so, I mean, those images are so bracing, and I wonder if, in fact, we will we will come to something like that. I mean... And then the other I thing, be surprised. yeah, I wouldn't either, Alexis, though I, 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 I feel nothing but dread and dismay that we can even get to that place in this conversation so quickly. I mean, I think one of the realities of climate change is that it's a catastrophe visited upon all the inhabitants of the earth, but it's visited particularly the poorest human inhabitants by the wealthiest members of of the world of which you and I are a member. You know, Absolutely. we are we get no hall pass here. Nope. We, no matter what we no matter whatever conditions of precarity we might feel. Yeah. We are in the the most elite group of people who have ever lived on the planet when it comes to this. Yes. And so one of the reasons I sort of I really supported the just stop oil protesters was because I thought by attacking art and using the art museum specifically as a symbolic place, they were trying to kind of bring that class awareness, that awareness of privilege as part of the conversation. That, that in fact, people like you and I have a greater responsibility um, because we have, we have contributed more to the problem. Um, and as you suggest, we may be able to rise above this problem in ways that other people cannot. Yeah. And I guess because museums are so symbolic and art is so symbolic, a lot of people said, this is wrong because this won't get them what they want. Like, what do art museums have to do with climate change? What does Van Gogh have to do with climate change? And I guess I wonder where you are, or if you just want to talk a little bit more about the sim, you know, symbolic versus actual, because of course the monks who self-immolated are also involved in a degree of symbolic behavior that is so 
uh, at the limit even of what we can comprehend? Well, you know, it's a, I think it's pretty complicated. On on the one hand, I really think that um, I have no problem whatsoever with um, symbolically attacking expensive objects that are revered by culture in Western history. Um, on the other hand, um, and 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 furthermore, the the positive side of it is that it is memorable. There is one of the problems with these, and it's it's a lot like Daffy Duck when he says, "I can only blow myself up once." Remember when he's being competitive with Bugs Bunny and Chuck Jones is duck a mug. These will lose their effectiveness. Part of this gesture is really about the shock of something that's never been seen before. And um, I wanted to bring up someone named Peter Tatchell, who is a professional activist that I heard on a podcast that had a fascinating set of parameters for effective activism. And, and one of them was that you need to be new, fresh, and imaginative. And if that is what these gestures are about art, um, I don't think it can go on for much longer because, um, or there must be, there's going to have to be new ways of doing that. Um, one of the important things that he also said is that it has to be led by the victims, and we are all the victims. You can't say that um, anyone on this planet isn't going to be a victim of this. However, these are like us. A lot of these 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 people that are in Just Stop Oil come out of an art school um, background. And I think it would help them if they had other demographics from other parts of the world doing this stuff. That would be, I think, more effective. Um, but he did say, um, Peter Tatchell, that um, it's generally better if you connect the dots and you attack the perpetrators, in this case, the fossil fuel industry or uh, lobbyists that are very responsible for keeping um, the status quo and business as usual. Right. In terms of like how activism actually works, and you alluded to this at the beginning of the conversation, and it's something that's on the website of the Climate Emergency Fund. Where they've done a lot of work and they can they can see that, you know, it takes about three percent of a population to become yeah. agitated enough to actually enact change. Yeah. That it doesn't just as one rotten apple can ruin the whole barrel. Three percent of the populace can irritate and aggravate people enough to get policy change. And so I'm really curious about. Um, you know, why more of us haven't gotten on board with that, with the protests? I mean, I, instead of feeling angry at these young people, I feel slightly shamed by them. Like I, I, I haven't I done enough. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I think part of it is that there's a nebulous villain out there that is fossil fuel industry. And then because we have to be part of that food chain in order to get to work or drive a car or put, you know, you know, heat your house, how can you not have self-loathing about it? That makes you want to deflect and like crawl under the bed and suck your thumb and cry. So, I mean, I have sympathy with that, but, you know, part of the strategy of um, these industries is to basically say it's your fault, right? How many people have yelled at Leonardo DiCaprio when he gets on his private jet to go to some climate change, um, meeting. And, you know, there's a point to that. It's not a good look. However, right. there's no other way to get to a place without using fossil fuels. That's the horrible nightmare of the predicament we're in. And that right. has to do with everyone. No one is, no one has solved that. So, right. um, I think that, uh, um, you know, let yourself off the hook a little bit, but 
I mean, there, it, that, that dynamic is in it so much that we can't escape it. The self-loathing and, you know, listen, the, the industries that want to keep making money as business as usual are counting on that. Right. 100%. Well, how do we, um, how do we get out of this existential podcast uh, corner that we've painted ourselves into <laughs> here, Alexis? <laughs> There's a good quote I, I heard a couple of days ago, and it's a, um, a quote from Archimedes that says, um, violence is the only lever big enough to move the world from Colson Whitehead's The Nickel Boys. And mm. I unfortunately um, think that that is the only way that this is, and I'm not advocating violence, call your lawyer. Um, but uh, I, how do you see yourself? I mean, what do you think? Well, I too, I mean, I'm a hardcore pacifist and abolitionist, so I find it hard to sanction or even wish violence in any way. Yeah. Um, that being said, I don't think we'll make it through this straight without violence, unless, of course, um, we start doing more than just the charade of recycling. Um, you know, that we do in our domestic lives and try to figure out, band together um, to change policy. And I guess really my biggest thing is uh, now, whatever, I'm 56 years old. I think it's probably time to start listening to 20 and 30 year olds because even though we're all victims, their victimhood is more pronounced than ours. You and I will die before a lot of this really goes down, and they won't. And so part of me just thinks, like, it's uncomfortable sometimes to give up that much power and authority of everything you think you know about how things are going to change and actually just, like, get behind, you know, these yeah. kids well, that's and kind of what even if I with. think they're wrong, just like yeah. get behind them. I couldn't agree with you more, Helen. And, um, you know, that's, I think, one of the reasons that it's so interesting to do this podcast right now, because we are basically saying, I, I consider, and um, it's hard to admit this, but, you know, our generation has failed uh, the future and um, we have to step aside on a certain level and you know, hope for the best from the youth. I think that that's right. And I think, I wonder um, if part of the vociferous response against Just, Just Stop Oil is in part because we did fail, like our generation did fail here. We got, we got some stuff right, but we didn't get this right. And so not only do we have to step aside, we have to admit failure. Both of those things are really hard. It's much more easy to go on the attack. I couldn't agree more. All right, Alexis. Um, thank you so much for all the work you've done and um, all the work you continue to do, especially to make bridges between our little art world and the scientific community. It's hugely important work, and I really value it. Thanks so much for asking. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time. <laughs>